We have a letter to finish. So let's do that. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Beginning in verse 2. We're going to pick it up at the very end of verse 2, the last four or five words here, where Paul tells Timothy, teach and preach these principles. And principles is in italics there, so it's really teach and preach these. Teach and preach these. These what, Paul? What what, what specifically are you asking Timothy to teach and to preach? And I would give it to you in two words, sound words. Teach and preach these sound words, this sound doctrine. He says, going on, teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words... Those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. So Timothy, for your part, you teach and you preach sound words, literally healthy words. Some translations might say wholesome words. The the word sound there, healthy. It has to do with food. It really does. It's healthy, good food. Paul begins... This last section of the letter by contrasting the wholesome, healthy Word of God with the unhealthy diet of human fillers and additives. And that's where we get into trouble. Human fillers and additives. Human additions. Human wisdom. Wisdom from below as opposed to wisdom from above. But the Bible is not processed food. It's what I love about the Word of God. I've had several experiences this week, and I I can't share them all, but, but where I have been without words. When I have not known what to say. When human wisdom was failing me big time. But I had the Word of God. And it is just remarkable, it continues to be remarkable to me after all these years that the sound Word of God goes in, it enriches, it builds us up. Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 20, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is not a book filled with the supplements of man. You will not find human thought in here except for a few places like in the book of Job where you see Job's idiot friends or where people blurt out things that are clearly not from God because the Bible deals with truth and deals with what really happened. But this is the sound Word of God. Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. That's the word of God. The scriptures are spirit and life. They are from and they are about Jesus. Contrast that with the teachings of man. Controversial questions. Verse 4 going on. Disputes about words. Out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. The teachings of man are just fodder for the flesh. They are the slop of humanity. And they are no good for us. And they do not do, they cannot do what the Word of God does. Now, Paul is obviously chewing on this metaphor here of the word as wholesome and healthy. 
This is something he's clearly thinking about in this season of his teachings. How do we know that? Well, back in chapter 4, verse 6, he's already said in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound, the whole, the healthy doctrine which you have been following. When we get on into Titus, we'll see in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says again, exhort in sound, that is healthy, wholesome doctrine, and refute those who contradict. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says again, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, healthy words, wholesome teaching, good food for godliness. And in verse 6 he says, But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And we put together uh, that, that addition there of you, you take godliness and you add contentment and you get great gain. That's the formula there in verse 6. And then after this Paul goes on to contrast godliness with the greed of those who want to get rich. Talks about the love of money. And then he leads into the final encouragement for Timothy, which we'll pick up now in verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Is Paul addressing Timothy personally or pastorally here? You see, the the letter, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, all three of these, these pastoral epistles, are great training for a minister, for a pastor. You know, if you're going into ministry, I'd say, boy, spend some time in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus because you will learn much about what it means to be in ministry and how to function as a pastor and how to administrate things in the church. It's all there. And so it's, it's ecclesiastical, you could say, these three letters. But it's so much more than that. And we read this and you've got to wonder, because he seems to switch gears here. He's talking about doctrine and he's talking about teachings and, and refuting these, these heretics. But then he says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Well, that starts to sound a little more personal, doesn't it? So which one is it? Is he training up a pastor or is he teaching Timothy how to personally follow after Jesus? And of course, you know the answer is both. That it's both. That this is teaching for Timothy's Timothy's life and his ministry. William Mounts, in his commentary on 1 and 2 Timothy, he points this out. He says, it's difficult to decide whether Paul's concern in these verses is for Timothy's own spiritual life or for his ministerial activity. It seems best to view the ambiguity as wholly intentional. Realizing that Timothy's spiritual life and ministerial activities were, get this, inseparable. And I like that. As a pastor and as a person, you can't divide Timothy out. Nor should you. 
I was sharing with, with my brothers earlier today that uh, several years ago I was at a party and there were some pastors there that I was working with and, and we were just enjoying an evening off together and, and having some fun and someone was asking a question about a teaching from the previous Sunday and I began to answer that question and one of my fellow pastors at the time said, oh come on, we're not here to talk about church stuff. Yeah. We're not here to do that Bible stuff. Come on, we're off right now. Let's just be off. As if. As if. You know, they talk about pastors burning out. I'll tell you, the pastor that burns out is the one who tries to separate out life and ministry. Who tries to pretend that he can be a pastor here and then just a person over here when it's all one and the same. What I'm saying is this. As Paul tells Timothy, look, look to yourself and to your teaching. That your life, a life of integrity, is one that is a life inseparable. And I'll put it to you this way, to be a little more graphic. Faith bleeds. Faith bleeds through. Like like thick yellow highlighter on thin pages of Scripture. Don't you hate when that happens? Oh, that's a good verse. You, you highlight it, you look on the other side, and now everything's highlighted. I didn't mean to highlight that. It bleeds through. Faith bleeds through like dark red blood through a white linen garment. Faith bleeds through. You can't separate it out. It can't be washed out of your personal life, nor should it be. The truth is, the secularization of our society is a big lie. And we're taught to live this way, are we not? We have marriage. If if we're married, we have home family, children, we have business, work, church, social life. And these are all our little boxes and we're almost playing different roles in each box. And this is the inseparable life. Life in Jesus is the inseparable life. You're a Christian, whether you're a dad or a business person, whether you're a teacher or out with friends, you are one who belongs to Jesus. So am I. Whether I'm wearing the pastoral hat or I'm tickling my son before bed, I am of Jesus. This is the inseparable life. And that phrase came to me this week in study, and I really think it's what Paul is getting at with Timothy, especially at the end, the end of this letter. Live the inseparable life. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, he said, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Both. Well, when am I supposed to do which one, Paul? You do them at the same time. Because as you pay attention to your teaching, you are paying attention to yourself. And as you pay attention to yourself, you better well be paying attention to your teaching. You can't show up and teach this and go live something else. This is the inseparable life. And you cannot have faith without life. Life without faith. It's all one. We have a word for that. Integrity. Doesn't just mean you do the right thing when people are watching. Allowing Jesus to define behavior and to define life, faith bleeding through. And if in fact 1 Timothy 1.5 tells us the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, well that's integrity. That is faith bleeding into every facet of our being. And to this end, Paul gives Timothy five imperatives. 
The first four in rapid succession, and then the fifth one further down in the chapter. The first four being flee, pursue, fight, take hold of. All imperative verbs in the Greek. And then down in verse 20, he adds a fifth one, guard. And these five things are five attributes of, well, what Paul will call the man of God. Five commands for the inseparable life of the man of God. He says first, flee from these things, you man of God. Now, ladies, that does not disclude you because man is anthropos. So it is all of us. All humanity. You who belong to the anthropos, which is every one of us, That's who he's talking to. Now, of course, directed at Timothy. But this matters for us all. Flee from these things. From what things? Uh, The love of money, which is a root of all sorts of evil. The desire for gain, aside from godliness. The, The desire to get rich off of what you do. He says, Timothy, flee from this. The man of God, the woman of God, flees the childishness of greed. Because the man or woman of God knows that greed will get you nowhere. It gets you nothing in terms of eternity. It can only pile on stuff here. So flee from these things. Literally, run the other way. But but don't run aimlessly. Don't run aimlessly. Flee and pursue. And that's the beauty of this. While you are running from, you are also running to. And he gives several things for Timothy to pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And we've got to take each one of these one at a time. Pursue these things, Timothy. Pursue righteousness. Very simply put, get right with God. Righteousness is simply being right with God. Pursue godliness. Well, that's simply pursue the image of God. Pursue faith. Well, trust in God. Pursue love. Love God. Pursue perseverance. Be assured of God. And pursue gentleness. And I'm going to say what that is until we get there. Pursue righteousness, he says. Get right with God. Man, flee from all this worldly desire and greed and hunger for stuff. Flee that. Run away from it and run to God. Pursue righteousness, rightness with God. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Oh, that I could do that. You know, oh, that I could be that way. Always have clean hands. It does not take long for these hands to get dirty. Oh, that I would have a pure heart. doesn't take much for the heart to be tarnished. Oh, that I would not lift up my soul to falsehood. It's so easy to slip into a a lie, even if you're not intending to lie. Not swearing deceitfully. All these things, it's so easy to do them and to fall short and to come up short. He says, if you do these things, the psalmist writes, you'll receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of your salvation. Praise God, we receive righteousness by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And that He accomplishes all those things. So then we can go back and we can practice having clean hands. And we can work on not lifting up our soul to falsehood or swearing deceitfully. We can put these things into practice in our life knowing we're not going to be flawless with them because we've already been made righteous in Jesus. Pursue that. And I think if there's anything Christians ought to be pursuing, it is that righteousness. Don't pursue the world. Don't try to look like the world that we live in. Don't try to emulate society. Pursue righteousness. Go for it. Go after it. Hand in hand with that. Pursue godliness. Get right with God and pursue godliness. That is the image of God. So it's even a step further. It's not just aligning myself with God, but it's looking like Him. Acting like Him. Thinking like Him. Behaving like Him. How do I do that? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15 So we look at Jesus and we pattern ourselves after Him. That is the pursuit of godliness. Remember what He said back in chapter 3, verse 16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Well, that's Jesus. And the mystery of godliness, as we've talked about now several times, is Christ in you. So we pursue righteousness through knowing we've been made righteous and practicing righteous things and we pursue godliness that is Christ in us and emulating Jesus who is the mystery of godliness. And pursue faith. Pursue faith. I will keep ringing this bell over and over and over. Faith is trust. Pursue a trust relationship with God. The very midpoint verse, you Bible students know, of the entire Bible is Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Stop trusting in what man tells you what to do and trust in God. My daughter and I were just going in the door this evening, Anna Marie, and asked her how she's enjoying college. She's now enrolled down at Skagit, and so she's kind of heading down there every day and experiencing the college life. And she goes, yeah, I don't know. That's Autumn Marie's answer. Yeah, I don't know. And as we walked in the door, I, I said, well, are, do you feel like you're doing well? Well, I got 45 out of 50 on my last paper. All right. That's great. That's an A. And she's like, what's an A? She's from Ghana. <laughs> there are certain cultural things she still has not picked up on. She's like, what's, what's that mean? I'm like, that's a, that's a good grade. Good job. She goes, well, I just, you know, I'm trying not to look like an idiot. And I said, you are not an idiot. She goes, oh, yes, I am. And I said, I said, Anna Marie, I just want you to hear the voice of God saying, how dare you call what I created an idiot? And she went, <laughs> kind of laughed and went inside. Man, trust in God. Trust in God, even over trusting in yourself, because God made us. He created us. We'll see that more in this section. He loves us. He knows what is best for us, and if we put our trust in Him, He knows where He wants us to go. That was part of that whole conversation with Honor Marie, too, is people keep asking me what I want to do after college. I don't even know what I want to do in college, she says. I said, that's good, that's okay, you don't have to know, but God knows. He knows what His plan is, trust in Him. And when you don't know what to do in your life, that's not a bad place to be. 
to not have a clue where you're going to be five years from now, that's okay. You don't have to know that. He knows. All you have to know is you're going to be where He wants you to be. And all you really have to say is, Lord, show me. I've told you this before. I love the idea of abdicating my will to God. I believe we've been given a free will, but I don't want it. Because I get myself into trouble with my free will. I'd rather just hand it right back to Him and say, You show me what, you show me when, you show me where, I'll do that. Just give it up, man. Trust in God. Pursue faith. And then He says, Pursue love. Pursue love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And that covers the whole of the human experience. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That's your spirit. And love the Lord your God with all of your soul. That's your mind. And love the Lord your God with all your might. That's your physical strength. Heart, soul, and body. Love Him with all that you are. And pursue perseverance. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Perseverance. And this is huge. In fact, in the inseparable life, perseverance is the key word. It's the hinge word of this entire passage for Timothy. Pursue perseverance. This whole section is about perseverance. The word perseverance, you've heard it before. If you've been in here, it's hupomone. It is sometimes translated hope. Other times translated steadfastness. Or as we read it here, perseverance. Man, pursue perseverance. That patient endurance. And I love how Jesus uses the word. He's giving the parable of the sower. And when he gets to uh, the seed on the good soil, listen to what he says, Luke 8.15, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with hupomone. They bear fruit with perseverance. They stay at it. They tend the soil of the heart. They continue to pour in the seed. Because if you know anything about planting, the more seed you dump in there, the more chance you're going to get something to grow. But when the seed is the wholesome, healthy Word of God, you know what's going to grow out of that is good. And you persevere and you stay with it and you don't stop. What kind of farmer would he be if the farmer planted the seed and moved to another state? Well, I waited a week. Nothing happened. I gave it an entire month and I got nothing. So I packed it all up, sold the farm and moved away. I mean, stupid. Perseverance. That's how Jesus describes it. You know, one of the biggest questions I hear is why is God taking so long to answer me? Why isn't God answering me? I've been praying and praying and waiting and I'm not hearing anything. Well, how long have you been praying? It's been like three days. (laughs) Or, man, it's been weeks. I've been waiting for the Lord to speak to me for months. Some might say, I haven't heard from God in years. Why is He taking so long? How long, O Lord? Boy, that's a favorite question of the psalmists and of the prophets and even of the tribulation saints. How long, O Lord, must we wait? And the Lord says, Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. 
Now, now understand that. It's not the receiving when it happens. It's the waiting. That's when it happens. The strength comes in the waiting, not in the moment of reception. It's not the being suddenly you're strong. It is grown in you like that good seed planted in the soil. It takes time. And sometimes the silence of God is the absolute best thing I could have. Because it's in those long seasons of waiting for the Lord to speak to me and not hearing a thing that faith is growing and strength is building. And I'm becoming more the man of God. Ladies, you're becoming more the woman of God in those long seasons of silence and quiet. As you wait on the Lord, you will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. And some do. Some just fly, man. They will run and not get tired. And some are fast. I like the last one. They will walk and not become weary. That sounds good with me. I don't have to try to fly. I don't have to always run. Man, if I could just walk, that would be sweet. And if you say, yeah, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength, I just don't believe it anymore. Then I'd have to say you haven't waited long enough. If you have waited on the Lord and you have not gained new strength, you just haven't waited long enough. Well, well, how long, O Lord? How long is long enough? A week? A month? A year? Abraham waited his entire life and never received what was promised to him. His whole life, and it wasn't long enough. Moses waited 40 years in Midian and then had to wait another 40 years in the wilderness and it still wasn't long enough. He didn't receive what was promised to him. The judges... The prophets, the faithful, the martyrs, they're all still waiting. How long, O Lord? Hebrews 11.39 says, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What a marvelous thought. Isaiah needs me. Jeremiah needs you. The saints and the martyrs and those who have gone before who did not receive the full promise are waiting so that they can enjoy it with us, all of us together. How long, O Lord, until it's right? Until by God's wisdom the time is right. Now I jotted this down. Listen, you might want to write this down because this is really good. Ready to write? Faith is forged in the fires of perseverance. Oh, yeah. No, write it down. Come on, you guys. Faith is forged in the fires of perseverance. Now, that is wholly true, and it sounds so cool or, or hot. And you know what? To say something like that when you're talking with someone who has waited so long and has had no answers... Sounds great to type it into a computer. It's great in Bible study, you know. Something else that Les and I were talking about earlier. Boy, it's one thing to come in here and sit in a chair and open the Bible and and, and offer these platitudes. And then you get face to face with someone who is in tremendous turmoil or pain. And phrases like faith is forced from the fires of perseverance sound stupid. They just don't arrive. They don't get us where we need to be. It's like C.S. Lewis. 
If you've ever read his book, The Problem of Pain, now this was a book that was very famous when he wrote it. it. It got him speaking gigs everywhere. He was going around talking about elucidating the problem of pain and why there's pain in the, in the world today. And he says on page 93 of The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that sounds really good. Theologically sound. And it was all well and good until C.S. Lewis crashed and burned in his own pain. If you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, go rent it from the library. I don't even think it's out on DVD. I think you have to get an old video cassette. It's one of the best movies I have ever seen. And it's about C.S. Lewis and this time in his life where he went through great pain and all the theology, all of those words... They fall flat. The Word of God doesn't fall flat, but faith is forged in the fires of perseverance. The words of Rick fall flat. They just don't land in the heart. They scatter on the ground. Listen. When you are praying for or ministering to someone who is currently in the fire, the last thing they need is your words, and the first thing they need is God's words. Because these words never fall flat. These, they they arrive at the heart. They minister to the heart. Someone's in pain, go to the Psalms. It was in Psalm 77 this last week. First half of the Psalm is the crying out of a heart that is not hearing from God, that is waiting on the Lord, the arm outstretched, the eyes dry from tears, the mouth dry from crying out to the Lord and hearing nothing. And the entire first half of the Psalm lands with, How long will you despise me forever? How long must I wait? And the last half of the Psalm arrives at the right conclusion. I will remember the deeds of the Lord past. Not even in my own life. I'll just remember what He's done. And the psalmist appeals to the crossing of the Red Sea and the rescue of the children of Israel. And he says, when I hear nothing, I can remember that. When I hear nothing in my life, I can remember the cross. When I'm in pain, I can consider His pain. When I'm at a loss... I can look to what He gave up. And when I feel like I'm not going to be able to take another breath, I can look at His resurrection and know this is truth. This is life. And by the way, when you're dealing with someone, a friend, a family member, someone who's just hurting, rather than tossing out the platitudes, bring the Word of God and and pursue gentleness. I find this very interesting, the placement in the list. It's last on the list. That's the first thing that's interesting to me. Pursue gentleness. Why does he say that? Why does gentleness make the list? Why is gentleness, by the way, in the fruit of the Spirit? Shows up there too. Pursue gentleness. Now, it's a different word in the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, gentleness here, this is the only time in the entire Bible this word is used. We see gentleness translated from other synonymous words, but this word, gentleness, this is propathia. And propathia is gentleness, listen, specifically having to do with somebody else. Propathia, then, is the gentleness that you offer another person. 
It's not that you're just kind of being generically gentle. It's not that you just have a gentle spirit. It's when you're dealing with others, you deal in gentleness. Pursue gentleness. Why? Because that means you're being like God. God is gentle. I think it's one of the most overlooked, misunderstood characteristics of our great Creator. The gentleness of God. There is none like Him when it comes to gentleness. Pause for a moment and and consider how awesome He has to be to have created the universe and everything in it. And how amazing He is to... I was thinking about this the other day. I grabbed a couple of eggs out of the fridge, pulled them out with my hand, I grabbed the orange juice with my other hand, I walked over, put the orange juice down, set down the eggs, and I didn't crack them. Why... Why can we hold an egg as delicate as it is in our hands and not just go, oh, whoops. <laughs> We're strong enough to. I mean, you could if you want to, you know, try this out at home. <laughs> Get an egg and just see how long it takes before you can squash in your hand and the yolk goes everywhere. And then the yolk's on you. <laughs> you can do that. Why is it? How do we know these things? Why is it? I said that you guys are going to think I'm so weird. But this, years ago... I reached into the drawer to grab the deodorant in the morning, and I flipped it up in the air, grabbed it with the other hand, put it on, it was back in the drawer, and I went, whoa, that's like circus stuff. How how did I know where it was in space? I wasn't even thinking about it until I put it back in the drawer. Flipping that thing, done. I mean, what? Now, I'm making a point here. I really am. Good, good. Maybe I should stop then. No, it's amazing to me what God has done with us in creation. What our hands are capable of doing. How tender and sensitive and how strong just the human hand can be. I mean, isn't that marvelous? That you can crush something, you can, put, you can draw blood with this thing, and you can tickle your ten-year-old. You can hurt and harm, and you can soothe. Just, just with the human hand. Now, now, apply this whole concept to the God of the universe, the awesome, powerful God who could flick us off the world with just His finger. And maybe now we start to get a sense of His gentleness with us. Ever feel like or wonder if God's angry with a decision that you've made? I guarantee he has been. He's too personally engaged with you and with me not to be upset by our stupid stuff. In the same way that I get upset perhaps with my kids at times, I don't get upset with them and then, you know, clonk them on the head. I want to. (laughs) Why doesn't God, in all of his anger, that power... We need a new pastor, Rick. uh, You know, he's out. Gentleness. God is amazingly, remarkably propathia. That is gentle toward others. He was in the midst of the crowd. And she came up and touched the hem of his robe and he knew it. Who touched me? Peter's like, what? Lord, everybody. No, no. I felt power go out from me. Who touched me? She confesses, "It, it was me. Immediately healed, by the way. She's standing there. She knows she's healed. She's not bleeding anymore. It was me. 
And Jesus turns around and He says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Gentleness. Or I think of another woman. She was booted out of the house twice. Genesis 16 and Genesis 21. Kicked out. It wasn't her fault that Sarah said to Abram, Go sleep with my handmaid. She was a handmaid. She had to do what she was told to do. It wasn't her fault. She got pregnant. Got booted out of the house. It wasn't her fault. She had a son. And then when Sarah finally did get pregnant, she got booted out of the house again. And so Hagar is out in the wilderness. And God found her there both times. And she called him El Roy, God who sees. God who sees. Now think about that. Hagar, this Egyptian handmaid of all the people on the planet Earth, out in the wilderness somewhere, and God saw her. God of the universe. Gentleness. He saw her. He took care of her. How gentle is our God to see us and not to crush us? How tender is our God to lead us and not to force faith? Why didn't God just tell me who He is? He's too gentle for that. Oh, He could tell us who He is. He could boom through the heavens tonight. We would all be immediately deaf and terrified and shell-shocked for the rest of eternity. He could do that. But in His gentleness, He's quiet and still. In fact, He's a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, if you are going through the fire right now, He sees, and He leads. And if the fire is hot or the valley is dark, never forget, our God is gentle. And He is acting in all gentleness. Paul says, Timothy, you be that way too. You pursue that. Timothy, you're dealing with people. You're you're having to handle people in in this church environment all the time. Be gentle about it. Don't be a bull in the china shop of the church. Don't go smashing and crashing and leaving wreckage behind you. No, pursue gentleness. Flee greedy gain. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance. And the last one, gentleness. At the very end of the list, quietly it comes along. But it's also interesting to me because it precedes the next imperative, which is fight. (laughs) That's interestingly placed. Pursue gentleness and fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
Why would you say that, Paul? How can you follow gentleness with a fight? Well, it's because the only fight I know of that comes of a gentle spirit is the fight of the faith. This is a fight. My friends, it is not fought with the bare fist. It's a fight fought on the knees. This is not a fight fought by winning the arguments. It's a fight fought in the sharing of the Word of God. It is a fight of gentleness. It is the battle of and for the Gospel. I've told you before, and we've seen this recently, we are not scrapping for our own salvation. We don't call this the fisticuffs of faith. Man, I'm going to fight my way into heaven. I'm going to fight and keep fighting until finally God goes, okay, you're good enough. No, I'm saved. I have a home waiting for me, a place being prepared for me. Even now as we sit here tonight, He is preparing a place for us. That's a sure thing. So what's the fight all about? I am fighting for the lost. I am fighting for those in this world who don't know Jesus. And you don't do it through brutality. Paul said, don't you know it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? So the fight should follow gentleness because it is a gentle fight. Jesus, quoting Psalm 6, or Isaiah 61, verse 1, said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Oh, that's the gentle fight. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners. Listen to those. The afflicted, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners. These are the ones who need us to fight for them. Why? Because they can't fight for themselves. They're too wounded. They're too hurt. They're too confused. They're too captured. They're too blinded. And so we fight the good fight of the faith. We proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that is right now. That's the church age. That is this year. That is today. The favorable year of the Lord. Fight the good fight of the faith. Note that. You might add this in your Bibles. It says fight the good fight of faith. The definite article is there again. It's the faith. The only faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, continuing, take hold. This is imperative. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Listen. Take hold of the eternal life. Have you taken hold of the eternal life? Or are you still holding on to this one? That's a tough dichotomy. Because the flesh clings to this life. The flesh wants to live as long as possible. The spirit, when I get into the spirit, man, I start to realize, I don't want to live into my 90s. I don't want to live to be 100. Why would I want to live to be 100 when I could go home and be with Jesus in my perfect body? I'm 53. I'm just about done. No, no, I'm kidding, obviously. I'm not going to jump the gun on this. But as long as God wants me here, I'll be here. But I don't want to hold on to this life. I want to go home. I want the eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life. Grab on to that and away we go. 
Philippians 1.21, just, this cracks me up. We've read this many times, how Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Which does not make sense in this world. That's crazy talk. To live is Christ, well I get it if you want to be all religious, but to die is gain? No, 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 no. Godliness is a means of gain. You know? Greed is good. I, I need to, that, that's... To live, to die, is gain, he says. And then Paul says, and I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I don't know, live is Christ, that sounds good, die is gain. I don't know which one to choose. Basically, he lets God choose for him. I'll go on living. If I'm going to go on living, I'll, I'll live for Christ. But to die, ah, oh, it's so much better. And Paul of sound mind declares what every Christian ought to understand. Take hold of the eternal life. Grab on to that. Look forward to that. It's not a death wish. It's an eternal desire. Don't let the worries of this life take hold of you. And don't cling to a life that you can't make any difference in anyway. Who was I talking to just this last week? An elder, elderly sister who made a comment about her days being numbered. And I, I just blurted out, I said, well, all our names, days are numbered. I mean, just because you happen to be older than me doesn't mean you get to go home first. <laughs> Russ, you understand that? <laughs> the age really means nothing. And I understand the older you get, the more you think about mortality, and the more you think about, well, I may only have a few more years. Hey, we may only have a few more days. Amen. So take hold of eternal life. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I love that. Timothy was called to this. Invited to it. Drafted, so to speak. God drafted him. But, but, not only was he called to it, he confessed it. Of his own will and his own choosing. And you made, Paul says, you made the good Confession. We talked about that Sunday. I love that. The good confession. It's just a good confession. And the good confession, as we talked about, is the profession of life and of faith. It's what I say. It's what I do. The inseparable life. I don't say one thing and do another. No, I live out this life. Paul says, take hold of this. You made the good confession. Of this eternal life that you've taken hold of, live it out with an eye to eternity, just like Jesus. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. John 18, studied it Sunday. One more thing about that though. Pilate, that historically tragic eyewitness to the testimony of Jesus. He saw it all before his own eyes. He heard the testimony spoken. He stood face to face with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Eye to eye with Jesus as the blood dripped down Jesus' face. Questioning Him. Even making, without realizing it, the good confession Himself. So you are a king, John 18.37. He's looking into the face of truth. He's declaring truth Himself. And you know, there are people who say, 
If I just saw Jesus in person, then I would believe. You so sure? Pilate did, and he did not believe. The Sanhedrin, they saw Jesus in person. The high priest Caiaphas, the previous high priest Annas, whose name I like to pronounce differently. They all saw Judas, walked with, lived with, sat by, ate with, experienced Jesus across three years of a remarkable, world-changing ministry. Did he believe? No, he did not. Well, I just see him, I'll believe. Listen, it's not the eyes, it's the heart. The heart is the matter. Romans 10.10, with the heart... Not with the eyes, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. But notice the witness of Paul's charge here. He says in verse 13, I I charge you in the presence of God, who note this, gives life to all things. The God who gives life to all things. What happens when a culture turns away from the God who gives life. Two words. Las Vegas. What happened last week in Las Vegas is what happens when a culture, when a person turns away from the God who gives life. From Las Vegas to Planned Parenthood. We lose all sense of divine accountability when we turn away from the God who gives life. He gives life. He wants us to have abundant life. He is all about life. But when you turn away from Him, when you reject the God of life, where's the accountability to each other? You're just another human being, and if I take you out, what difference does it make on the grand scheme of things? But you know what? When I know there is a God who gives life, when I recognize that I am accountable to Him, that changes everything. Do you see how underhanded Satan is in trying to deal with a doctrine of death? Be it death for an infant or an unborn child, death for an elderly person wanting to die, quote-unquote, with dignity. You want to know what my definition definition of death with dignity is? It's dying in the hands of God. But we live in a society that is fast running after the doctrine of death rather than the doctrine of life. And it's because we have taken our eyes, as a culture, as a society, we've taken our eyes off the God who gives life. See, if your eyes are on Him, again, you are aware He is watching. He's the giver of life. He is the divine judge. I don't have a right to take that from anybody. Again, being the unborn child, or the elderly person, or somebody in a crowd at a concert, I don't have the right to do that because God is watching me. Now, it's interesting to me. I was thinking about that concept. The God is watching you. When I was a kid, it was used often by parents to say, I may not be there, but God's watching you. And you'd be, you know, looking over your shoulder. And in my teen years, and I, I remember this as, as a thing that actually began to occur in the church. We started to shy away from that comment, God is watching you. Because it just sounded so heavy-handed, and we wanted a personal God. See, that's the generation I grew up in, the generation of the personal God. Now, don't get me wrong, God is personal. 
And God is engaged. But we have this sense of, ah, we don't want to do the be good. God is watching. And so we began to move away from that idea. You know what we should have done? We should have learned from Hagar. And that is, we should have recognized El Roy. God sees. At the same time, knowing His gentle nature. I love the old saying, God is watching you. He just can't keep His eyes off you. And He is. And He's gentle. Psalm 18.35 says, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, listen to this, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Your gentleness makes me great. Again, that is so different than the, the thought process of this world. It's not gentleness that makes greatness. It's power, right? And authority. And might. Your gentleness makes me great. So Paul charges Timothy with all this. Remember, this is both pastoral and personal. It's the inseparable life. In verse 13, I charge you, and then in verse 14, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what's the commandment? What is the commandment specifically that Paul is charging Timothy to keep? Fight? Flee? Are there other options? Just those two? Fight and flee? Fight and run away. (laughs) Pursue? Fight, flee, take hold? Which one is it? Because he says the commandment. Singular. So, (laughs) and we're, we're throwing out good ones here. Is it guard? I think we're getting close. If you, if you read commentaries on this, you find for five commentaries, six opinions. Okay? It's because one guy can't even make up his own mind. But the idea here, the flow of the passage, best indicates the larger imperative for Timothy to persevere. That in all of this, both the fleeing from these things, pursuing the righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, the fighting of the, of the good fight, the taking hold, the good confession, all of this, it's about persevering these things, Timothy. In fact, it's the context of the entire life and ministry calling. It's the whole letter. When Paul says this, that I charge you to keep the commandment, what has he been commanding Timothy to do all along but to persevere in these things? Teach these things, Timothy. Prescribe these things, Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he'll say, teach the Word. That's your command. Live this life out. Persevere in your life and your ministry calling. So how do we do it? I mean, how do we honestly hold on with perseverance? How many of you, just show of hands, how many of you get tired of persevering? Okay, I figured just, just about everyone. Some of you are doing great. God bless you, liars. No, I'm, I'm, did, I, did I say that out loud? I was kidding. You know the days happen when you walk in the door and you're just fed up. And so how do you do it? I look at saints older than me who have run longer than me. And I'm so, I don't know, not enamored. I'm impressed. I, I, I'm amazed. 
I think I've been doing this for a long time, but not half as long as he has or she has. And I think, wow, how do you do it? How do you persevere? And I think we start to get the answer in verse 15. He says, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which He will bring about at the proper time. He's going to do it. I don't even have to worry about it. I don't have to wonder, do I have to persevere a day or a month or a week or a year? Do I have to persevere another 20 years? I don't. doesn't matter. I don't have to think about that because I know Jesus is coming at the proper time. He will show up at the right time. He is going to bring it about. So guess what? I don't even have to bring it about. In all this stuff that I'm doing, I'm not bringing about the return of Jesus. He's got that. And what I love about that is whether I'm driving down Highway 20 or sitting in prayer with some friends or having a meal or over an anacortis or having surgery or you know whatever's going on I don't have to worry about being at the right place at the right time for the right moment for the right calling of Jesus I don't have to worry about missing it what if I'm out of town that day you know what if I'm absent from class what if that's the day I choose not to show up to church and all eternity Jesus is going to go you know I don't have to worry about that. He will bring it about at the proper time. He has not forgotten you. He is not distracted from us. He knows the time and His timing is perfect. But but we need more assurance. We really do. I do. Maybe you don't. I need more assurance, Lord. How can I be certain? How can I be certain you're going to do it? How can I persevere until that day? And then we get this marvelous doxology. He will bring it about. Who will? He who is the blessed and only Sovereign. The King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I can trust in Him. I can persevere because I know Him. He's going to get me there. He's going to take us to the end. The gentle shepherd, the good shepherd is going to lead us all the way home. Now note this, just biblically speaking, as students of the Word, this doxology is the second form of an earlier doxology in this letter. And I'll give you a comparison. Follow this through. The earlier doxology is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul writes, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So put them side by side. Chapter 1, verse 17. To the King eternal. Chapter 6, the King of kings. Chapter 1, immortal. Chapter 6, who alone possesses immortality. Chapter 1, invisible. Chapter 6, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Chapter 1, the only God. Chapter 6, the only sovereign. Chapter 1, be honor and glory forever and ever. Chapter 6, be honor and eternal dominion. Chapter 1, amen. Chapter 6, amen. (laughs) He's repeating the doxology. Like bookends of this beautiful letter. 
Paul sings the praises of God who can see us through life and ministry. The God who can carry us through the inseparable life where our faith bleeds into everything else. What is the assurance of our perseverance? It's not what, it's who. God is. Jesus is our assurance in and of Himself. He is our hupomone. He's our steadfastness. He's our perseverance. He is our hope. Now, listen to part of this doxology again, because in all of this perseverance and hope, there is a question. Verse 16, He is the one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. Well, He alone possesses immortality, which means He is the only way we can get there. You're not going to get eternal life anywhere else or from anyone else. It's only through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He alone possesses immortality. But then Paul says, whom no man has seen or can see. God said to Moses, Exodus 33.20, You cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live. And this immediately sets up a conundrum if you've studied any of Scripture. No man can see me. Well, Abraham saw God in the form of a man, Genesis 18. Jacob wrestled with God, again, in the form of a man, Genesis 32. Moses saw God in the burning bush, says he saw him, Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. And what about Gideon? Judges chapter 6 verses 11 and 12. Gideon who saw the Lord. Now I realize if you read Judges it says the angel of the Lord. But when the angel of the Lord speaks, he speaks the words of God himself. And then Samson's mother, she saw him. Judges 13 verse 3. Elijah saw him. 1 Kings chapter 19. And, And what about Isaiah? Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. He didn't just see the Lord as Abraham or or, or Gideon or or Jacob in in the form of a man. No, he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. (laughs) Okay, side note, I just got to tell you this. The train of His robe. There are some translators who will not include that in the Bible. Robe. Why? Because it's an anthropomorphic term. Because in the description here, it's the one term that is very, very human. They don't like the idea of throwing a human term into this beautiful heavenly vision. You got to. I'll explain why in a second. The train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called out to the other saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling up with smoke. (laughs) And Isaiah said, Woe to me! I am ruined! I'm a man of unclean lips! And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, note this, the Lord of hosts, that is Yahweh, 
Isaiah says, I have seen Yahweh. No man can see my face and live, the Lord told Moses. How does this work? Well, you Bible students know, in every case, Jesus is the physical manifestation of God. Jesus makes God knowable. Jesus makes God even visible to us. He is, Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Jesus. But it doesn't solve the problem in the doxology. Look at it again. He who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And in the doxology, Paul is referring to God, here's the problem, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Isn't that Jesus? Are we on the same page that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? If you're not sure about that one, Revelation 17, verse 14, speaking of the Lamb, says He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. Revelation 19, 16, on His robe, speaking of Jesus and His second coming, and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So here's the conundrum. Paul is saying, he's talking about Jesus. The doxology here, like the doxology in chapter 1, is about Jesus Christ. And yet he says he's invisible in chapter 1. And yet he says here, whom no man has seen or can see. How does that work? I thought they saw Jesus. Didn't John say we have seen his glory? Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen him. But Paul says he, he can't be seen. No one has and no one can. In Greek thought, God is unknowable because He's spirit. Okay, the Greeks would, would consider it, understand it that way. Jesus even said it. John 4.24, God is spirit. So those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And when we gather on a Sunday morning and we worship God, we do not see Him. Not physically, not tangibly. Not like that. I'm not talking about visions or anything else. I'm just talking, do you see Him? So we we can't see Him because God is Spirit. But the Spirit did take on flesh so that we could know Him. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So Jesus is the perfect, exact representation of God. Yes, we have seen Jesus, and yet there is an aspect of Jesus Christ I'm not sure that we will ever see. An aspect of Jesus that has never been seen. Because in Hebrew thought, it's not that God is unknowable because He's a spirit. It's that God is unknowable for this reason, because He is holy. He is holy. Revelation 4.8 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So are you saying, Rick, that we won't ever fully see God? 
I'm saying what Paul says, no man has seen Him or can see Him. You know what the catch is here? Man. It's Anthropos. No Anthropos has seen Him. No Anthropos can see Him. But Matthew 5.8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not blessed are the pure of flesh. Not blessed is the man who's cleaned himself up just so. No Anthropos, this will not see Him. Cannot see Him. I can't end the flesh. Anthropos, humanity, that says nothing of my resurrected, spiritual, glorified self. And as the new man, in the resurrection, I believe then, we will see Him. In fact, we're told as much, John says in 1 John 3, 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Yes, We will see God. Yes, we will see Jesus. But for now, for now we are enabled by Him to persevere in the flesh temporarily by Jesus who is God eternally. And that brings us to the end of the letter. We'll skip the section on instructing those who are rich because we've done that. If you missed that instruction and you're rich, please listen to it. Verse 20, the fifth and final imperative For the inseparable life, guard. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called the knowledge or the gnosis. It's where this idea of Gnosticism, Gnosticism comes from. These people who taught there's this higher knowledge, there's this depth of spirituality. You don't really need God's Word. You need the gnosis. Careful. Careful when anybody ever says to you, you really don't need this. You just need that. You need, oh, what the Bible calls the bathos. You need the deep things. Be careful. No, guard what has been entrusted to you. Some have professed the gnosis and thus have gone astray from the faith. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. The word guard, phulaso, means to keep watch. In fact, it's from the Greek word phulox, which means watchman. The watchman on the wall. It's it's Ezekiel's calling. Now is being repeated to Timothy. By the Holy Spirit, through Paul, keep watch. What am I supposed to guard? The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep watch. Guard the word with which you have been entrusted. Guard the word. Teach the word so that no one will twist it or oppose it or bend it to the false gnosis of mankind. There has been a poor guardianship of the Word of God. And it is, in my opinion, the single reason that churches cringe and cower and crumble and ultimately cave in to the culture. Because we have not been guarding what has been entrusted to us. We have been given the truth. Guard it. Teach it. Study it. Know it. Live it out. Be inseparable from it. Ezekiel 3.17 God gave this charge to Ezekiel Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel wherever you hear or whenever you hear a word from my mouth warn them from me warn them and he said, listen Ezekiel, if you do if you hear a warning and you warn them and they don't listen it's not your fault 
But if you hear a warning from me and you don't warn them, it's on your head. Warn, watch, guard, be responsible for. Paul says back in chapter 4, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. And I am convinced that we are still to be watchmen and watchwomen today. That it is our calling to guard that which has been entrusted to us. Guard, not as in keeping it from others, holding up in our churches. We're not going to share the Word. We're guarding it. The way you guard the Word, the way you keep watch over the Word, is by speaking the Word. And by living the Word in the inseparable life. Last thing. Don't guard the Word of God by instilling fear. Don't use the Word of God to bring panic or dread or judgments on people, but with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Keep watch. And here at the last, Paul leaves Pastor Timothy with the essential tool of the godly watchman, grace be with you. How do we persevere until He comes? With grace. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray, Father, I, the two things that stand out most to me in this, in, this, in this lesson on perseverance, Father, are gentleness and grace. Teach us what it means to persevere with gentleness in this world. And pour out grace upon grace, Lord Jesus, that we would have grace overflowing in our lives so that we could gently and gracefully Guard this Word, confessing the good confession. Lord, may our lives come into alignment that what we believe, what we claim, what we confess is, Father, how we live. In Jesus' name, Amen.